uh, very pleased to welcome. I think really the closest thing, uh, maybe along with Edward Snowden, that the, the privacy world has to a rock star. Um, uh, Bruce Schneier, who is a, uh, uh, frequently described, I think accurately, as a security guru and has the hair to prove it. Uh, he is uh, the author of many, many books. Uh, uh, applied cryptography is fantastic, uh, but uh, very large. If you uh, want something with slightly less math, his wonderful new book, Data and Goliath, is uh, uh, recently out, and I think we have uh, a few copies perhaps left outside. Um, it is my privilege and pleasure to introduce Bruce Schneier. Thank you, and I'm the last person between you and being done. And, and, and I'm the last person because it's kind of my job to, to take stock of where we are and, and what happened today. And actually what I want to do is step back and, and see how we got here. I want to talk about data and how it's used here in the early decades of the, uh, the 21st century. And data fundamentally is a byproduct uh, of the information society. Everything we do on a computer creates a transaction record, everything. And that, that data is there. I mean, you have to actually work to make a computer not produce data about a transaction, browsing the net, making a phone call, paying with a credit card, anything. All of our socialization on the internet produces data. Email, text messages, phone calls, internet telephony, Facebook chat, all of this. And this data, is increasingly stored and searchable. And Moore's, this is Moore's law at work. Right? Data storage drops to free, data processing drops to free, and it's easier to save everything and figure out what to save. And this is the promise of big data. Save it all, you'll figure it out later. And, and this is what's happening. I, mean, I, I looked at my email. Uh, in the early days of mail, I had hundreds of email boxes with people and projects in different years. Uh, that stopped, that changed in 2006. Before 2006, hundreds, after 2006, four. Because for me, for email in 2006, search became cheaper than sort. It's easier to save it all and look for what you want than figure out what to save and put it in little boxes. That line has been crossed with pretty much everything. That means we're, we're leaving all of this digital exhaust, all of the metadata you heard about this morning, all the data as we go through our lives. And this is not a question of malice on anybody's part. This is the way computers work. And this data is fundamentally surveillance data. Now, you've heard about this a bit today, that metadata is surveillance data. It's data about us. It's data about our relationships, our associations, what we're interested in, what's important to us, what we buy, what we read, what we're thinking about. In a lot of ways, it's much more important than conversation content. The NSA is not collecting it all because it's not that valuable. They're collecting it all because it's very valuable. Right? Metadata reveals who we are. Nobody here lies to their search engine. Right? And it's also easier to store, to search, and to analyze. And this is why you keep hearing the term that we're living in the golden age of surveillance. That, that this is the age of maximal surveillance. And some characteristics about it. It's incidental. Right? It's a side effect of the things we're doing. It's a side effect of being on the internet. It's not what's happening directly, it's happening indirectly. It's covert. Right? If, you're, if you're browsing the internet and there are 20 people behind you taking notes, you're going to look at them and shoo them away. 
If there are 20 internet trackers in your browser, you don't know they're there. It's not salient, not something we're thinking about. Your cameras are getting smaller. A lot of this is becoming less obtrusive. It's hard to opt out of. You'll hear some advice sometimes. If you don't like it, don't use a credit card. Don't be on Facebook. That's not reasonable advice to give people. Don't have an email address. These are the tools of modern life. If you're a teenager on Facebook, you never get a date. You just can't not do that. And it's ubiquitous. It's happening to all of us everywhere because everything is computerized. And ubiquitous surveillance is fundamentally different. We heard some of those differences today. Surveillance, we know what it is. Follow that car. Ubiquitous surveillance, follow every car. When you can follow every car, you can do lots of things you can't do. You can do surveillance backwards in time. You heard about hop searches. You can search for topics. You can search for interesting things. Lots of examples in the NSA data of things you can do when you when have everyone under surveillance. So this data is largely being collected and used by corporations. And it's important to understand this. Right? Surveillance is the business model of the internet. We build systems that spy on people in exchange for services. And the history is interesting. We, we, we did it really for efficiency reasons. When the net became commercial, there was no good way to charge for anything. And you couldn't charge people a dime, a dollar. I mean, the, the credit cards weren't, didn't go that low yet. You didn't have PayPal. And so you didn't have a mechanism to charge. Companies had to make a profit. So they pulled the advertising model from all the other mass market medias that used it. Especially on the internet, we all expect it to be free. Sites that charged subscriptions just disappeared. And advertising of what was left. And what the net gave you was the ability to personalize. And that was discovered pretty quickly. This merges with the data broker industry, which came from direct mail, and their job was to divide all of us into lots of little categories so we can get the right junk mail. I mean, that industry melds with the early internet advertising industry, and you get what we have today. I mean, you get sites that basically make their business spying on you. Right? That's Google, that's Facebook. And there's a saying we often hear at these conferences, if you're not the customer, you're the product. Remember this when you complain about Google's customer service? They have great customer service. Just become a customer and you can use it. Until then, you don't have access to it. And, and, and this data is collected basically for the purpose of psychological manipulation. Like persuasion, advertising, propaganda, whatever you want to call it. Right? Getting you to do things you might not do otherwise. And it's very personalized. Personalized ads, that's easy. Personalized offers, you know, lots of cases where the prices you see, the offers you see depend on who you are. It might depend on where, your geographical location, what's near you. And we're seeing research, and, and, and haven't seen any actual you know, companies doing this yet that we know of, of personalized manipulation. And corporations know an amazing amount about us. I mean, this device is a really impressive surveillance device. It knows where I am at all times. I mean, otherwise, it can't ring, right? 
It knows where I live. It knows where I work. It knows when I wake up in the morning, when I go to sleep, because it's the first and last thing I do. We've all got one, so it knows who I sleep with. Right? I mean, I, I used to say that Google knows, knows more about me than my wife does. Now, that's true, but it actually doesn't go far enough. Google knows more about me than I know, because Google remembers better. Right? Google knows what kind of porn all of you like, and that's kind of creepy. I mean, what, I mean sort of, who, know, who knows you're here? Now, your cell phone knows. That's easy. Google probably knows because you probably got Google Maps enabled, or maybe you have Apple Maps. Uh, did you take an Uber here? Did you buy something with a credit card nearby? Use an ATM machine? Now, any one of the surveillance cameras out there? The number of, of companies that, that track us just simply by the fact that we exist. I, I could mention that you use the Metro. And government surveillance largely piggybacks on these capabilities. We learn from the Snowden documents, NSA uses internet cookies, our logins, cell phone location data, all of this stuff. And it's not that the NSA woke up in the morning and said, let's spy on everybody in the world. They woke up in the morning and said, wow, these corporations are spying on everyone in the world. Let's get ourselves a copy. And they do through a variety of mechanisms. Right? They purchase, through purchase, through compulsion, through coercion, through theft depending on the data and where it's located and their relationship with the company that has it. And this allows governments, not just the U.S., all governments, to get away with a level of surveillance we would never allow otherwise. And the government passed a law saying we must wear a tracking device 24-7, all of us, we would rebel in a minute. Yet we put this in our pocket every morning without thinking. Or if the FBI demanded, whenever you make a new friend, you must alert the FBI. Right? You're laughing, but you all alert Facebook. Right? You know, would we give a, a copy of our uh, correspondence to the police? No, we would give it to Google. I mean, Steve Bellavan said earlier this, this morning that he runs his own email server. I also don't put my email on Google because I don't want Google to have my email. Last time I checked, and I did check, Google has about a third of my email because you all put your email on Google. So the nature of NSA surveillance changed around the same time that we started producing all of this data. And to understand it, you need to really go back to the NSA's history. NSA is born during the Cold War when a voyeuristic interest in the Soviet Union is the norm. And the NSA collected a lot of data about our Cold War enemies. Right. Some of it useful, most of it not. I mean, it's a lot easier to, to predict the speed of the new Russian main battle tank than it is to predict the fall of communism. And, and that mission waned after the fall of communism. And budgets got lower, and, and the NSA did less surveillance. But that changed. That changed the terrorist attacks on September 11th. Surveillance got a new lease on life, and a very different lease on life. But the intelligence community was given an impossible mission, never again. Right? Ridiculous. But when you, when you have the quixotic goal of preventing something from happening, the only way you could possibly have a chance is to try to know everything that does happen. 
And when the enemy can be anyone anywhere, your reaction is going to be to spy on everyone everywhere. So the NSA shifted from government-on-government espionage to government-on-people surveillance. Remember when we learned that the NSA is spying on Angela Merkel's cell phone? I think that's the one, one NSA revelation. I thought that's, that was exactly what should be done. Right? Spying on foreign leaders, check. <laughs> it's the other 50 million Germans that we should think about. Right? So from espionage to surveillance and from targeted surveillance to bulk surveillance. At the same time, there's another change that affected how this works. That's the nature of communications. It used to be that separate communi- that, that, the commu- that the physical communication link determined what the communications were. If you wanted to spy on a Soviet military link between Moscow and Vladivostok, you would know with 100% certainty that there would be no communications from Iowa on that wire. Like the separate links, the separate phone networks, the separate radio networks, separate satellite networks, they were physically different. The internet changes that. The internet doesn't work that way. If you are in Moscow and sending an email to Vladivostok, it will probably go through the United States. Brazil learned this. They were kind of surprised to learn that all the internet to Europe goes through Florida. That's the way it works. And all the communications are intermingled. So you can't easily pull out Afghani internet conversations because everything else is is, is mixed up in there. There's one global communications infrastructure. And we're seeing the same thing happen with storage. The rise of cloud computing means there's one storage infrastructure. You want to listen in on, I'm going to make this up, on Syrians, you've got to go to where they are, which is going to be Gmail, which is going to have everything else too. There's no longer separate storage. Everything is together. Or Or even further back, that your files will be on your computer. No, they're not, right? You got them all in the cloud. So these few companies hold everything. And they're telecom companies, and they're these service providers. So what we really have, and the way to think about it, is, is a public-private surveillance partnership. I mean, there's a lot of places this, this grates, but both groups are very happy spying on us for reasons of, of, of profit and for reasons of, of control. I mean, again, it depends on, on the company and the country. You look at control, you know, some countries doing it for law enforcement and terrorism fighting, some for actual social control and protecting against new ideas. But the groups are, are, are pretty much uh, in line. And you see a lot going back and forth. Corporations mine government databases all the time. Governments leverage corporate data collection all the time. Lots of private corporations support government surveillance, whether it's government contractors building the stuff. I assure you the Utah data facility is not being built by government employees. It's a lot of very valuable contracts building that. 
right? surveillance technology providers, cyber weapons arms manufacturers selling this technology, both to uh, U.S. at the local level and, and to lots of countries around the world that you probably don't want to have this technology. I mean, there's a whole security industrial complex. And this makes it hard to pass reform. I mean, you're not going to see privacy laws protecting us in the market as long as the government wants the data that comes that way. I mean, you're not going to see major government reform as long as there's a lot of lobbying dollars making profit off, off of surveillance. And this gets to be a very hard problem. Now, we are seeing breaks. We heard earlier about, about the, the, the case involving uh, Microsoft and, and data held in Ireland. I think there's a difference in, in generation here. The telcos went through the Cold War assisting NSA surveillance. Right? So when, you, when the NSA went to AT&T and said, we want to spy on the internet, they said, great, put your stuff in that closet over there, lock the door, don't tell anybody. Right? You know, when, when they went to Yahoo and Yahoo said, no, I'm going to go take you to court. I, I think that's very generational. And I like seeing the fact that right now there is PR value in fighting. I mean, Apple is making a lot of hay on, you know, we're not going to cooperate with the NSA. There was a debate between uh, Tim Cook and Admiral Rogers a couple of days ago at an event. I haven't seen the transcript yet, but supposedly it was pretty good. Now you're seeing Microsoft and Yahoo and Facebook and companies really doing more work. But I, to me, this is around the edges. I mean, you still have the, the largest, I mean, the two largest collections of, of tagged photos are, are inside the NSA, I'm sorry, inside the NSA and inside Facebook. And the Facebook ones are being mined by government. Uh, there was an article a couple of days ago about uh, the DNA databases by companies like 23andMe being pulled at by the FBI who wants it in their DNA database. All right, so, so why does this matter? I think it's important. And, I, and I, the last panel was fantastic because it really got to the heart of why this matters. I mean, what are the political liberty issues here? Right, we, we heard about accusation by data. We heard about uh, the chilling effects. We heard about inhibiting dissent. I mean, uh, I mean the, the comment we heard about, about surveillance being used to control dissent that affects power. That's a really important statement. Because I think it goes further that, that surveillance inhibits social change and social progress. Because social progress happens at the edges. You think about an issue like, I don't know, gay marriage. Gay marriage went from never happened to inevitable with like no intervening middle, middle ground. And in order to make that shift right, over the decades to, to where we are now, there had to be a point way back when, when someone tried gay sex once and said, you know, it wasn't that bad. And then decades come and you know, generations change and you get to the point where it's socially acceptable and you get to the point where it's legal. And any social change you look at, whether it's civil rights or, or marijuana legalization, whatever your issue is, it starts by people at this end where it is socially unacceptable doing it and having it be okay. And then it spreads slowly. Ubiquitous surveillance at this end stops that process cold. So I think it's really dangerous for, for very fundamental reasons. In, in, in the uh, 
On the corporate side, we have, we have problems of fairness and equality. How much surveillance-based discrimination do we accept? How much surveillance-based manipulation? Right? Is it okay for one group to see different prices than another group? And we know there have been experiments in, uh, in showing people ads in ways that are more manipulative. Right? For example, you are more likely to respond to an ad if the pitch person, if the image looks like you. And there have been experiments done, not by showing you as the image, that's creepy, but by using morphing technology and showing a, a generic image and you and mixing them together to a face that looks sort of like you, you're more likely to purchase the thing being advertised. Is that okay? Right? Is it moral? Should it be legal? I don't know. We have to talk about this. Right? Facebook has done experiments where they, you know, not a lot, but can manip manipulate moods of their users. Is that okay? Is it okay if for an advertiser to pay Facebook to manipulate your mood so you're more receptive to the ad that they're going to show you? But we don't think it's been done, but is that okay? Right? We, we know Facebook can, and this is done in a, just an experiment, uh, manipulate uh, whether people go to the polls or not. Should they be able to do that based on what they believe your political affiliation is? Again, it is, would be legal for them too, probably would be a big scandal if they tried, but it might be worth it. Is that okay? I mean, there are some core issues about this data being used in a, in, in, as, as a market tool. Because, you know, the fairness of the exchange that makes a market is being threatened. Right? There are issues of security here. I mean, the infrastructure surveillance, I believe, hurts our security because it enables other surveillance. An interesting example are our stingrays. People know what stingrays are. Stingrays are basically fake cell phone towers. Uh, the FBI puts the Singray is a trade name by Harris Corporation. The, uh, the, the general thing is a uh, IMSI catcher. And you can put one up, or the FBI does, and it can, will get information about phones in the air, so they'll know who's here and use that to uh, try to solve crimes. And that was an incredibly secret FBI technology. I mean, they would literally drop cases if it became clear this would come up in court. And the thing about this really super secret FBI technology is it's not super secret FBI technology. And lots of countries can do this. You right now can go on Alibaba.com and buy yourself an IMSI catcher for $1,000. A couple of years ago, uh, one of the online magazines uh, drove a, a van that detects these things around DC and uh, found like 30 or 40 of them around embassies and government buildings run by we have no idea who. Right? It's our choice. If we build an architecture of surveillance, it means that anybody can use it. And the thing about all this NSA bulk collection is that it's too easy. When everyone can do it, it actually hurts our security. Because remember, today's top secret NSA programs that come tomorrow's PhD thesis and the next day's hacker tools. The stuff flows downhill as technology gets easier. And, and lastly, this matters for privacy. I mean, what was striking about the video and the conversation was how much this loss of privacy affects human dignity. I mean, privacy is not about something to hide. It is about whether I get to control how I present myself to the world, to you.
It's my autonomy as a person that I'm in charge of my information, of where that goes. And there's lots of, uh, of evidence that shows that societies under surveillance behave differently. And we heard that really compellingly just now. And that is you know, a huge loss to us as a culture, as a society, as a species, and something worth saving, even at the expense of, of you know, a little bit of crime. So that's where we are. Where we're going, I think it's to like snacks or something. <laughs> Thank you. He says I have a minute's worth of questions. All right, so three-word questions, only yes or no answers. Go. I mean, and that joke is only funny if it's if it's not true, unfortunately, right? Uh, what would be your response to the uh, assertion, we have no privacy, get over it? You know, I mean, I think that's defeatist. That, I mean, we do have privacy, right? We're all wearing clothes, for example, right? So, so that, that, it, that's nonsense. You're, you're not in my computer right now. I'm not in your computer right now. I mean, there are privacy challenges. There's a lot less privacy. I don't think we get over it. I think we, we fix it. I mean, just because something is technologically natural doesn't make it inevitable. You know, it's like saying, you know, we've all got guns, let's just shoot each other. What the hell, right? You know, you don't say that. You say, well, we're going to make this thing illegal. I know that you want to shoot that guy, but we just can't. We as a society are going to make that not what you're allowed to do. I think we have to recognize that we're living in a world of data, that we want data to do things, that data is important. It's important to us in aggregate, that some of this, these technologies where we give up our data are valuable. How do we put in the controls? How do we make it work? And I think there are technological solutions, there are legislative solutions, there are market solutions, and, and there are really very much cultural solutions. We have to recognize what our values are. Because, you know, get over to, I mean, I, it, it will surprise me if we reach the end of the democratic experiment. I, I don't buy that. I mean, I think we will fix this. This is a hard one, it might take 20 years. But we will, privacy is too important to get over not having it. I mean, it's like you have no freedom, get over it. Eh, no, nah, I don't think so. I will take one more. Can you like coin flip for it? Uh, sure. <laughs> um, thank you. I just wanted to uh, um, ask actually um, regarding the experience actually that Germany lived right, um, during, uh, I mean, this wonderful occupation. Um, so you, ex you, you, you were mentioning like the cultural experience in the US. How would you um, expect this to change within the US? Um, yeah, so. So, so, so Germany's interesting, East Germany's an interesting uh, analogy because Ger East Germany spent a lot of money and a lot of personnel on, on a level, trying to get ubiquitous surveillance, a level that actually was way less than exists today. 
you know, just because we all carry this nonsense around with us. Uh, I, you ask a good question is how the change happens. The answer is I don't know. Right? I mean, you, you, your two options are kind of peacefully and violently. My guess is peacefully. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm optimistic here. I think it takes a generational change. I, I don't think the generation now in power understands the issues enough to, to do real change. I mean, the Patriot Act, the, the, the Freedom Act that was talked about, you know, Senator Leahy, I mean, did a good job passing it, but we're talking about one program under one authority, very narrow. I mean, so we got a problem like this, and we made a little change here, rah. You know, I think we need something much more deep. I don't think you can get that with the generation that got scared 9-11 and is still kind of scared, uh, unfortunately. I mean, we do our best and we'll keep trying, but the real major change, I think, needs a new generation that's going to say, what are you guys scared about? This is dumb. And eventually we'll get to it because, you know, our, in our history we've done a lot of things that are really dumb and we get over it. And we'll do new dumb things. I don't know. I'm optimistic, but it's hard for me to convey the optimism. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you.